Yesterday, Audrey and I took a drive down to have lunch and visit a very good friend of ours who lives down in St. Augustine. As we drove back toward Interstate 95 along Highway 16 and past the entrance to the first set of St. Augustine outlet stores on that side of Interstate 95, something surprised me. As I glanced up, only half paying attention to the store names on the sign, mostly trying, as we all do, to avoid all the cars pulling in and out of the entrance, I suddenly spotted a store name on that sign that, until that moment, had never, ever caught my attention before. I'd certainly seen the title of the Old Navy outlet store because Audrey and I have both occasionally picked up a cheap pair of pants or a few shirts from Old Navy. I'd also noticed numerous times before the name Camping World on that sign mainly because of all the things you can think about around that particular portion of the interstate exit, camping ain't one of them for me. I mean, you're in the middle of the shopping mecca of of this part of Florida, so I guess folks who like to go camping or who are looking for a nice new RV need an outlet shop just as much as someone looking for shoes. But yesterday, those two outlet shop names were not at all what I noticed as I began to plan my journey back up the ramp on to, to the northbound I-95. The title that grabbed my attention for the very first time ever was the name written about halfway down on that sign, the name Kate Spade. Now, I am the father of three daughters, as all of you know, and my two older daughters will reach the ages of 15 and 20, if you can believe it, before this year ends. So I have, of course, seen the name of the fashion designer Kate Spade many times in the past. Usually, it's been the title of something I immediately knew we would not be able to afford. So when I reached the name Kate Spade in my shopping, I generally started looking for something a little less fashion forward. But of course, her name didn't grab me out of nowhere yesterday simply because I wanted to stop and buy a new handbag. The name caught my attention because over the course of the summer, Kate Spade sadly became another very famous person who for some shocking reason that no one other than her family may ever really know decided to take her own life. In fact, it was while I was in Ireland during the first week of June that the news came out about Kate Spade's suicide. And just a few days later, during the same week, the news would report another celebrity who had also sadly decided to take his own life, a celebrity named Anthony Bourdain. Now, I certainly know that a lot more people have heard of Kate Spade because of her presence in this country and in the world in fashion. But for me, Anthony Bourdain was someone I had followed much more closely. He was one of the first celebrity chefs and writers to really step outside the kitchen and step onto the back streets of places around the world, combining food and culture and cuisine and travel in an amazing set of television series. His most recent television series, Parts Unknown, earned five Emmy Awards over the last five years, and his books before and after have been bestsellers in this country and around the world. And on Friday, June the 8th, just a few days after fashion icon Kate Spade committed suicide in her Manhattan apartment, Anthony Bourdain, a man arguably at the very top of his game, made the completely unexpected decision to do the very same thing. 
And it's even harder to understand why this could ever occur when we go over in our brains just how great and successful and beloved two people like this had been up to the point of their sad deaths in our culture and in our view of the world in this time and in this year. This isn't supposed to be what happens to people whose names are on billboards or whose faces appear in front of their peers at television award shows. Isn't that very success in our 21st century world, the exact kind of advancement, celebrity and wealth we are supposed to want to be attaining? Isn't that the dream we all have? The story we'd like to be able to tell someday, the kind of accomplishment and recognition that pushes us from childhood to go to school, to work out our bodies and our minds, to take chances and to try as hard as we can to make it simply because the payout, according to our very materialistic worldview, is nothing short of the American dream, the chance to have everything that we want and everything that we hope for. Yet when depression continues to plague our society and to rob us of the very people that we look up to as everything we want to be, What is it saying to the wealthiest, most technologically advanced culture in the history of the world? How is it that when we seem to climb up the ladder and have everything, it still isn't enough for so many of us? Why are these stories combined with senseless violence and domestic terrorism, the stories that we hear so frequently today? At this moment in a world that has more than it's ever had before, more medicine, more education, more technology, extended life expectancy, vast knowledge, science, and advancement. Why, with all of that, do we still seem to know that something is missing within us? Seeing Kate Spade's name on that sign really brought all of those hard questions back into my head this weekend. And you know, as much as we all know that rather racy first reading, so well read by Bill this morning, the shocking story of King David and his revolting lust and abuse of Bathsheba and her husband Uriah in 2 Samuel, in so many ways I feel that that story is carrying a whole lot of the very same questions. Why, when someone has everything, Would they feel the need and the longing to take something else that is not theirs to have? This story we cannot overlook is the story of one of the greatest kings of all history, King David of Israel. Remember, this king, whose story we've been reading throughout the summer, began as nothing more than a poor shepherd boy, the youngest of his father's sons in some backcountry of Judea. And he has grown to be a monarch that's united the two Jewish countries of Judah and Israel. He's defeated enemy after enemy after enemy. He's established a capital city in Jerusalem. He's even built his own home, a castle, in which to live in. And even though we did not cover this in 2 Samuel chapter 5, let me just say that in the tradition of the kings during that time, King David ain't a lonely man. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13 says this, In Jerusalem, after he came from Hebron, 
David took more concubines and more wives and more sons and daughters were born to David. With that verse, I think we can safely say that King David has everything. He had power and wealth and prestige and wives and children and concubines. He was a king and a monarch in every sense of the word. And yet by the time we make it to the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, the great King David is wandering around aimlessly. He's been sitting on his couch, the Bible says. He finally goes up on the rooftop. Passing up the springtime of the year when the scripture proclaims that kings are supposed to go out to battle. Instead, King David is searching for something else that in the midst of everything he has seems to be missing. And he suddenly thinks he's found it, we hear this morning, when he looks down from the roof of the king's house and he catches sight of a beautiful woman bathing. And that moment of lust And of longing, King David begins the process that will lead to one of the greatest sinful acts of that great king's reign. He will take Bathsheba, who is the wife of one of the greatest and most dedicated soldiers. He will use his power to force himself on Bathsheba, creating a child in that lustful moment. And then he will see to it that he places Uriah, his great servant, directly in harm's way to ensure that Uriah is sacrificed so that David, the king who has everything, can take this one thing that God never intended for him to have. And again, why did David need to do this? He had as much as any human being could have had at that moment in history. Why was it not enough? Move ahead, if you will, through the history of the Jewish people from the time of that great king to a lonely hillside just off the coast of the Sea of Tiberias, also known to us today more as the Sea of Galilee. There we find this morning a large crowd of people, probably some who are rich and wealthy and some who are very poor with next to nothing. And every one of these people seems to be searching for something. They seem to be searching for the one thing they know that they need to heal them, whether they have a lot or whether they have just a little. They're seeking the one thing that can take away that ageless feeling of sickness and depression and longing and want in their fallen lives. And whether they know it or not, They've come to stand in the presence of someone who's actually from that very lineage of the same King David we just read about in 2 Samuel. In fact, when we read his genealogy in the first chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, we will actually find that this rabbi and teacher comes from David's line through David's son Solomon, who is that very child David forcefully creates when he sinfully takes the wife of his servant Uriah. These people, 5,000 in all, we're told, are there like David and like Moses and like Peter and like Mary Magdalene and like everyone who's followed all the way up to you and me today because they're carrying with them a hunger that needs satisfying. 
And when the disciples begin to move through those 5,000 people that are out there sitting on the grass, listening to the ministry of the word coming from the lips of Jesus, when they get out there and try to find what they can gather to feed all of these people, all they come across is one little boy, we're told, with five loaves of barley bread and two fish. Oh, I've heard so many sermons that want to say that really all of those people had in their pockets the food they needed for sustenance and that all that they were waiting for to share that physical food with everyone was to see those five loaves and two fishes broken up and passed around. But friends, the danger in that kind of idea of this only miracle story that appears in all four of the Gospels in the New Testament is that it assumes that all that's really being discussed here is physical food for the body. Absolutely not. The miracle of this story is that they're talking about spiritual food. Jesus is taking five barley loaves and two fishes. We're told he's giving thanks to God. Then he's breaking all of those up and he's distributing them out to those who are seated on their knees all around him to feed them completely in body and mind and spirit. And brothers and sisters, what they are receiving is nothing less than that old story of the manna from heaven, the holy food and drink of new and unending life that is beginning to come finally, more fully and more completely through Jesus. And there's so much more graciously and generously created for us in this story by Jesus. The scripture says when they were satisfied, Jesus told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. Nothing that receives that spiritual food may be lost. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing in this world that can ever satisfy the hunger that we all are carrying. Nothing in this world. We may convince ourselves that we can figure it all out ourselves. We're smart, we got everything. We may convince ourselves that if we just make it a little bit farther up the ladder, if we just make enough money, if we could have enough success, if we could attain power and prestige, maybe be a little famous, we will finally have everything we could possibly want. It'll be shared with us most likely, and we will never hunger again. But friends, look around you. Watch the news. I don't care which station you watch it on. Watch it. King David should have had it all. So many of the great minds of our culture and time, of science, of entrepreneurship, of politics, athletes and artists, names and faces we will continue to see in books and on billboards and signs and on screens, they should have had it. But sadly, their hunger is never ever to be fully satisfied. And in some cases, the sadness and the depression and the loneliness and addiction grows out of that hunger. And it can rob them, can rob us of everything. I just want you to know this morning that if you're lonely, if you're searching for something that you can't seem to ever truly find, if you're sad and depressed and hungry for the one thing that you can't seem to lay your hands on or figure out, 
Would you give yourself a chance to be fed by Jesus? Would you let go of all those things that never seem to fill you up? And will you just give Jesus that opportunity to really satisfy your sin-sick souls? It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter if you think you failed. It doesn't matter if you've always thought you could do it, but are suddenly beginning to find out it's too difficult and it's too exhausting. Jesus can take five barley loaves and two tiny little fish and feed 5,000 people with 12 barrels left over. Jesus can take little unleavened wafers of bread that taste like cardboard. He can take cheap port wine and he can turn it for you into his very body and his blood to transform you into what you really are, children of God. Don't wait for this world to come up with it and share it with you. Come to this altar. Come to Jesus. Amen.